The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Now hear the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby equated. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to the light the things now hidden in darkness, and who will disclose the purposes of the heart? then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. If this is your first time gathering with us, I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, A couple quick announcements. Um, We are having a child-slash-infant baptism on... um, Sunday, March 30th. Also, if you, if you would prefer to have your child dedicated, we're doing dedication slash infant baptism on March 30th. You can find out information at the city uh, and on the city online. So if you need information, please figure that out. Let us know. We would love to, to uh, partner with you in that. And then we're having a believer's baptism resurrection Sunday. So on Easter Sunday, we're going to be having a believer's baptism. So if you are new to the faith, if you've embraced Jesus Christ, um, as your Lord and Savior, we want to baptize you on, on Easter Sunday. So please, uh, you can ask someone back at the um, uh, box office. They can show you where the process starts. They can get you a book that will help you get started. And we'd love to do that on Easter. If, you're, um, if somebody in your missional community, MC leaders, somebody in your missional community has embraced the faith, you, uh, you need to be asking your group about that. Maybe someone's came to faith and you don't even know about it. And they need to take the next step and be baptized on Easter Sunday. And then lastly, if you're new to Sacred City, you just want to know a little bit more about us, we're having a visitor forum uh, directly following this service. We offer, I think, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, There's a light lunch provided. It's going to be right next door. We want to welcome you. Come on over. Ask any question you want. I'll try to answer as many as I can. And then two short things. We're a church (laughs) who believes Scripture uh, and God, you know, God's blessing says go uh, multiply, multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply, and his blessing causes us to be fruitful and multiply. So we love babies around here. We love children. We believe they're a gift from the Lord. We believe blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, right? I, I've got three in my quiver and one in the womb, all right? So I'm about to be quiver full here. Uh, so we enjoy, we enjoy children around here, but here, let me just say this. One thing, if your children are joining us in the service, which is fine, and if they're babies, they can, they can join us. I, I just want you to know a couple things. Number one, if they do start making a fuss, we, you can go to the balcony. They don't bother anybody in the balcony. They don't bother me. And I can typically preach over them. Children don't really bother, they don't bother me from up here. 
um, but they they can we're close quarters here, so they can just uh, dis- they can be a distraction in the in the gathering. Also, if you're and is that not just when they're crying? Sometimes if they're really cute, right? Some of your babies they don't distract anybody, but some babies if they're if they're really cute, my, like most of mine are, they want to be passed around, right? All the People are like, let me have a turn. That's a distraction in the service, right? That's a distraction. It's like bringing your little pet puppy, okay? Right? We don't do that. So listen, if you want to pass your child around and you want to goo-goo and gaga and everybody wave at them during service, take them up the balcony, please. Or we have, a, we, have a, a, we have an area in the back in the foyer where the audio goes out there and you can sit down and, and you can do your thing and they can goo-goo and gaga and roll around. You can just, look how cute they are. You can do all that out there. We just don't want to be a distraction. And, uh, and secondly, on the, the term of distraction, um, if you're one of those people, now I've never understood these people. They pay like $12 to go see a movie and then like halfway through the movie, they get up and they walk out to go to the bathroom. Like, what? You can't hold it for two hours during a good movie? Are you kidding? What is wrong with you, right? Like, you're missing something valuable. Listen, when, when the preaching starts, we, we really don't want you moving around. We really, if it's emergency, okay. But if you're getting up and going to get coffee, you're a distraction to those around you. And I really would like to call names and just point it out because we all know who you are because you do it every week right? You do it every single week and everybody looks at you and I kind of stop and okay, nope, nobody's going to yell at me from their seat. All right, it's just somebody going to get coffee. All right, I get it. Like, let's just stop that. That's just immature. That's just immaturity. You don't need another dose of coffee in the middle. of. Now listen, if I'm that boring, just go somewhere else. All right, go find another church, something more entertaining. I'm sorry. If you need another dose of caffeine to get you through the service, but please, um, it's just distraction. And honestly, I've heard from, I've heard from visitors that they were really distracted in our gathering because of the, Google, the passing around of babies and because of people getting up to leave uh, to go coffee or go to the restroom break. And I just, you know, that, 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 that kind of hurt me, honestly. That kind of hurt me because we want people to be able to hear the gospel without being distracted, right? So that said, I'm going to go ahead and jump in the text this morning. That might tell you a little bit about my attitude this morning too. So buckle up. <clears throat> Here we go. Father, you are a good God. You are a gracious God. And this first Sunday of Lent, uh, we're reminded that you've made propitiation for us, that you have made a way for us, that you have justified us, that we are broken. We are really without hope in this world except for your gospel, except for what you have done to save us. We are without hope on our own. There's no getting back. There's no fixing ourselves. There's no getting better without your grace. And Father, I ask that you would be here today, that you would be like you promised to be in your word, speaking to us, making dead things live again, that you would be giving us eyes to see our own sinfulness so that we can rejoice in a great Savior. Father, I ask that you would think through my mind this morning, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would hear through our ears that um, anything that's of me, that's of my flesh, that's just something I find interesting, that you would just let that fall flat. But anything that's of your spirit, you would breathe into people and you would plant seeds and you would breathe new life into your people this morning. I ask that we would just relish in what you've done for us. We would be excited and rejoice in the work that you've done in us and through us and around us and for us in Jesus Christ. Would you do all these things for your great glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, if you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. At Sacred City, if you're just joining us, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Right now, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've affectionately titled this Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church, okay? 1 Corinthians is the messiest church in all the New Testament. We've already been, we've been tiptoeing through this. We've been seeing some of their um, brokenness, some of their inherent sinfulness, some of the ways that the community is breaking down. It's common to a lot of churches, common to a lot of communities, the way human communities break down because of pride, because of jealousy, because of bitterness, because of all these different things. And as we're studying, it's important for us to understand, when you're reading your Bible and you see all those little numbers, right? Chapter breaks, verse breaks. If you're new to the Bible, I just want you to know that those things have been added, right? They're not in the original manuscripts. They weren't originally there. It was just written as a letter to the churches, to the little missional communities spread across um, Corinth. And scholars have added in those chapter breaks and those verses for us so that we can study. So I can say, I don't have to say, uh, go down to the fourth line of this paragraph on this page, but I can actually say, hey, go to chapter four, verse one. And they're really helpful for us, right? When we're studying, we're reading the Bible. But sometimes they can be unhelpful because sometimes they throw in an an unnatural break in a line of thought or in an argument. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Um, This is really building on what we spoke on last week. Paul warned believers, Christians, people who call themselves followers of Christ, he warned them, don't deceive yourself. Okay, he's talking about sin. He says sin has this inherent ability to blind us, to fog us over our eyes that we think everybody else doesn't know what they're talking about. We trust ourselves and we trust our heart and that's something uh, inherently wrong with us. And Paul's building this argument out from that last week. He says, don't trust yourself. Your heart is wicked. You deceive yourself. But he ends the, the, he ends the, the chapter with, Remember, all things are yours in Christ. And you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. And everything that you actually ultimately hope for, and ultimately long for, and ultimately need and desire is found in Christ. And your job is to remember that you have been given everything you need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. And now Paul is going to build out the argument today. That's where we're headed. So I want you to look at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, Paul, is ne- Paul does not have the pyramid leadership structure of most CEOs and most uh, business organizations and even many churches have adopted today. Paul does not see himself as the founder, as the president, as the apostle, as the CEO, and that everybody else is kind of underneath him supporting his work and telling him how great he's doing. And really, you know, he gets paid the millions of dollars and then it trickles down and this guy gets minimum wage on the bottom. That's not the structure of the church that Paul presents to us. Paul presents to us a very humble, a very upside down pyramid that apostles who've been chosen by God are actually the chief servants of the church. They're the they're stewards and and servants. It's not about them. Remember I said they're waiters. They carry the meal out. They're they're not there's nothing special about them. 
They deliver to us what God has given to them. That's my job, to deliver to you what God has given to, to me, and you are to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians tells us, right? So that's what we see from Paul right away. Now look, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. See, my job and Paul's job was to be faithful. He's saying, you want to you find a good pastor? You want to find a good apostle? You want to find a good leader? Here's the qualification. Are they trustworthy? Are they faithful? Not, can they preach the paint off the walls? Right? Not, can they exegete with the best of them? Not, are they phenomenally gifted at organizing the church and putting people on mission and moving the mission forward and moving the mission and moving the vision forward in a city? Paul says, faithfulness trustworthiness. That's the value. That's what you put weight in gold on. Too many people follow men and women who are untrustworthy, but they're gifted. They can put butts in the seed and they can put money in the offering basket and they can fill, you know, move people forward on mission, but they're unfaithful. They're not trustworthy. But how do we judge and this, is, this is for not just leaders, this is for all of us. We're called to be trustworthy. We're called to be faithful. And when we're faithful, God makes us fruitful. Like none of us can go out and produce fruit on our own. Our job is to be faithful. And then God makes us fruitful. But how do we do this? How do you judge whether or not you're faithful or not? Whether or not you're doing a good job? And I think many of us, I think all of us actually, we live for this judgment you hear me? Listen, we live for this judgment. We want someone or something to look at us and say, you're good. You are doing a good job. You have been faithful. You are trustworthy. All of us in this room, I can guarantee you, I don't have to know you, but I know you're working hard right now for that judgment. You're working hard. You might be trying to please God. You might be trying to please your neighbors. You might be trying to please your parents. You might be trying to please yourself. You got this little standard within yourself that you're trying to live up to. But all of us are trying to get the judgment that we're good, that we're faithful, that we're trustworthy. And that's where we're headed today. And I think that's inherent in how we would like, we would, I would call, what I would call the human condition. The human condition. It's interesting because last Sunday night was the Oscars. And I don't watch them. Or I didn't watch them. I would have normally, but I, did, I was just too doggone tired. I didn't watch them. Uh, but I was told that a common theme this year was on how storytellers and movie makers they work so hard at presenting to us the human condition. Now, I didn't really know what they meant by that, so I just Wikipedia it, right? Uh, Hollywood says, see, there's, there's basically two types of movies, right? There, there's the type of movie that some people just make movies to make money, right? Like Bruce Willis is usually in those movies, okay? They just blow up a lot right? Blow up a lot, almost die a lot, and then other people die a lot in those movies. Not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those movies, right? But that, there's those types of movies. And then 
There's other people that make movies to actually tell good stories, stories that somehow reach down deep inside of us and move us, and they ring true to us. They, 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 they spark something deep within us. Hollywood, Hollywood says that those stories that reach in deep, those stories display for us an accurate picture of the human condition, which is an interesting term right? The human condition, this is what, this is what the human condition is. It's, it's that what makes us distinct from everything else around us. It's what makes humans, humans, humans different from all the other created things and animals and such. It unites all of humanity. It's got to deal with like concerns with meaning, right? Animals don't just, what's the meaning of life, right? Your dog's not worried about it, Right? Give him a bone, he's happy in a place to do his business, and he's fine, right? That's all he wants. But humans concern themselves with the, me- the deeper things, the-, the meaning of life, of loneliness. I don't want to be alone. I need community, of freedom. I want to be a free person, of morality. What is right? What is wrong? These all-, all of these things make up what they- Hollywood calls the human condition. And of course, our mortality the fact that we're going to die, like that's can be really a, a heavy weight to think about as a human being that one day all of us will be in the ground. All of us will, from dust we came, from dust we shall return, that all of us will die. So what is, our, what is the meaning of life in this quick span that we have here? That's part of the human condition. The human condition is the subject of such fields of study as philosophy and theology, sociology, psychology, anthropology, demographics, evolutionary biology, cultural studies, and sociobiology. All of these studies concern themselves with what we would call, and what Hollywood even says, is the human condition. And last week we spent a considerable amount of time talking about how the Bible describes the human condition and how contrary it is to popular psychology, that pop psych believes people are inherently good, they're naturally good, they're born a blank slate, they're born good and clean, and their greatest need in life is actually the elevation of the ego, actually the elevation of self-esteem, that if they could just get self-esteem figured out and think highly enough of themselves, everything else would fall into place. They say your heart is good, follow your heart wherever it will lead you right? Follow your heart and everything will work out. And we were confronted with the fact that the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that our greatest problem is actually a sick heart. Our heart is deceitful, the scripture says. It's sick. It's sinful. And out of it, out of our heart flows, Jesus said this, flows the issues of life, flow our sinful patterns, flow our you know, our, just our neur- neurotic tendencies, all of our neuroses flow out of a neurotic heart. And that if we don't do something about our heart, our heart will in effect destroy us and destroy those around us. It can be sep- cause us to be separated from God for all eternity. And it's in my opinion that Hollywood gets this concept of a sick heart of an inner darkness, 
of an inner battle in the soul of human beings better than most people who sit in the pews of churches on Sunday morning. That Hollywood gets this inner battle, this inner struggle, this inner darkness better than most of us who call ourselves Christian. It was G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton was a popular British Christian author. Um, And he was asked by the London Times to write an article on the topic of what is wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? They sent out a letter. They wanted a lot of popular people to write back their opinion And they were going to publish it in the London Times. What is wrong with the world today? Think about that. What would you write? What's wrong with the world? Poverty, slavery, communism, the depletion of our natural resources, the destruction of our planet. If you had to give your answer to our greatest problems in our world, what would it be? Now, many prominent others were asked to do the same. The London Times, they're going to publish them, right? And today I just decided, I just decided that I was going to read you the entirety of G.K. Chesterton's reply. Okay, so just buckle up. Here it is. Here's his, what's wrong with the world? Here's the entirety of his reply. Dear editor, the problem with the universe is me, signed G.K. Chesterton. The problem with the universe is me. Now that is a radically Christian perspective. No other religion in the world says that human beings at their core, in their hearts, are broken, are bent. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The problem with the world is me. See, the... How is that? Well, really, the problem is that everybody is like me, right? We're all similar. We're all the same. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm the only one who I have any control over, and I know that I'm selfish. Listen, you know how selfish I am? Sometimes I know my daughter's got a poopy diaper. I know it. I smelled it, and I'm just going to act like I didn't know that. Something smells in here. I don't know what it, I'm completely oblivious to what that could be. Hoping that my wife, right, sweeps it, does the mom thing, right? Change the diaper. That's how selfish I am, right? Or you go to make a little snack. Have you ever done this? You make something for your wife, and then while you're bringing it, you think, I'm going to be really gracious and kind and make my wife something. And while you're bringing it to her, you're measuring which one has the most. (laughs) This one. Here you go, Ben. right? How selfish. How self-centered. Like, I want things to revolve around me. Now, listen, we're all a little, we've been taught out of like protected self-interest, right? You better control your selfishness a little bit. You better mask it a little bit so at least you can get along with others. You don't want everybody to know that you're out to get them or you don't want everybody to know that you want to be better than them. Right? You want, you, you got to get along with people. Like competition's okay up to a certain extent, but then eventually you got to be, you got to get along with folks, right? There are things that, we, that exist called laws, right? And what are these laws? These laws are basically, they're around to control our selfishness. 
Like if we, if we didn't have laws, I might look at something and go, I like that. I will take it. Doesn't matter that it's yours. I will take it. Laws govern our own, our, they're, con, they're meant to control our selfishness. The problem with the world is us, is me. It's internal. It's in our heart. Jesus would say the problem is we don't love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind, and we don't love our neighbor as ourself. Really? Our greatest problem is that we don't obey the golden rule. How simple is that? We teach all of our kids that treat others as you would like to be treated. We know that. We have that standard in our head for ourselves. But how well do you meet your own standard? How well do you treat others the way that you want to be treated, honestly? I think you fail that standard. I know I fail that standard. And as a result, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And as I said before, I think Hollywood gets this. Have you, have you noticed like the style and the genre of television shows that are winning Oscars these days? Just a few like Dexter, Breaking Bad, House of Cards, Mad Men. What all these shows have in common is the inherent brokenness of the characters, the inherent sinful bent of the human condition of the main characters. Listen, Dexter is a really sweet family man by day and a raging, raving serial killer at night. Now, we dismiss his lust for blood because he's a good serial killer and he only kills bad guys and gals. How endearing. But I found Dexter... I found all of them actually, but Dexter to be a great window into the human condition. And Hollywood gets it. Hollywood sees there's something broken in the souls of men. See, Dexter himself, he calls the murderer within himself, his desires within himself, his desire for blood, his desire for power, the power that he feels from taking someone's life. He calls this inherent brokenness, this thing within him, he calls it his dark passenger. He names it. He gives his human condition, his sinfulness, his brokenness, he gives it an identity. He gives it a title. And all through the show, you're aware of this battle between Dexter the man and Dexter the dark passenger. There's something in me that lusts for things I shouldn't have. And he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wicked. He knows it's deplorable, but he can't stop himself. There's a darkness that dwells within him. And it wills him to fulfill his sinful desires. Can I ask you? I know this is an extreme example, but have you ever felt like there was a dark passenger within you? fighting against you. You want to do something and there's something within you that won't let you do it. You don't want to do something. I want to quit that. I don't ever want to do that anymore. But there's something within you that just wills you and takes over. It feels like it takes over, bullies you into doing it. I'm never going to look at that again. I'm never going to eat that again. Next night, right? The cookies just look too good. I don't want to do it. I got sick off of donuts like three weeks ago. I swore I'd never eat another one. 
Last night I finished my workout. I was happy. Looked over. The kids had one left. Nobody's around. Get it. You sit down to read your Bible, and all you can think about is the list of things you have to do today. Can I ask you, what's easier, sitting down and watching five hours of Netflix or praying for five minutes? What's easier? Have you ever shocked yourself when you, like, really wanted to be happy for someone? You got the raise. You got the minivan. You got the car. You got the house. That's so great. But inside, you're sick with jealousy. You want it. I really want to be happy for that person. But inside, I'm sick with jealousy. Why can't you be happy for them? Why does their happiness bug us so much? We have a dark passenger. Our hearts are sick. Our sinful hearts hate we don't like to hear this, but they hate everything about God. And I, I can also describe this as the flesh, if you're used to that language, the flesh. Our sinful hearts hate everything about God, and since our dark passenger resists everything about God, listen, it resists every way we try to taste him and to know him and to love him, and the more something enables us to find and feast on God, the more violently our dark passenger resists it. Your dark passenger is never going to go, don't watch Netflix, don't watch Netflix, don't watch Netflix. It's going to be going, you just, you worked hard today. Sit down. Get the big jumbo bucket of popcorn. Sit down. Grab a big tall coat. Don't get that diet thing. Get the real one. Sit down and spend, you know what? You need eight incessant hours of non-commercial <laughs> media consumption. That's what you need right now. And all of us go, you know me so well. And we know, now if you've ever been on one of those late night binges, you know how you feel when you're done. Well, actually, you don't feel done. You know at two in the morning, you're like, man, I gotta go to bed, but what's Jack Bauer gonna do next? <laughs> you just feel it. It's never, you never feel completed. You haven't watched enough. You can't watch enough. Now listen, theologians call this inner brokenness this dark passenger of the human condition, they say that it's because of original sin. That's the title, they get, original sin. And John Calvin says this, original sin then may def be defined as a hereditary corruption. Hear that? Hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature, a brokenness, an evil bent of our nature, extending, listen to this, to all the parts of the soul. There's not a, part of our human condition that's not affected by sin. Not, not one part of our soul that hasn't been affected by sin. Even our motives, even our desires, even our want, everything's been infected by it. Listen, he says this. This is what original sin does. First, it makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God. It makes us opposed 
to the wrath of God. It makes us, puts a smack dab in the middle of the wrath of God. Our original sin, we're born enemies of God. We're born on the wrong team. We're born opposed to God. And then secondly, it produces in us works which in scripture are termed works of the flesh or sin. So this inner brokenness, this dark passenger, we're born enemies of God and then out of that internal brokenness, we do what broken people do. We rebel. We sin. We prove our brokenness. We hurt others. We hurt ourselves. We sin against God. All of us have this dark passenger. A sin-sick heart from the moment of conception. Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad, right? Thanks for that. Adam and Eve, right? It came through our lineage. But what many Christians fail to realize, listen, is that when God saves us, and this is what makes us different than the Catholic Church, when God saves us, and he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a new heart of flesh, the dark passenger remains. Catholics believe the heart comes out, the new heart comes in, no dark passenger remains. A person could theoretically be sinless from that point on. It's not what we, we don't believe the Bible teaches that. The dark passenger remains even in a converted Christian. Now listen. What? Listen. He doesn't have, the dark passenger no longer has the authority that he had before, but he still has quite a bit of power. Okay, listen. Do you know the difference between authority and power? The dark passenger, our flesh, has a lot of authority, but or has a lot of power, but no longer has authority. Again, let me go back to Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton once quipped that if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant right now, there is no denying that he would have a great deal of power here. But I would be the first to stand up and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. Right? If a rhino breaks into this room right now, hey, I'm in in control right now. I say, somebody get that thing out of here. He has no authority. Now he come in, he might make a big mess, he might injure some people, he has a lot of power, but he has no authority. Chesterton says that's like sin in our lives. In the Christian's life, the dark passenger within has a lot of power. He can bully us around. He can run into our lives and wreck some things, but he has absolutely no authority. Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, has removed the authority of our dark passenger. He has nailed him to the cross, and we are no longer slaves to sin. But like that rhino, who has no authority whatsoever, but still has some power, our dark passenger can force himself on us at times. And what shows like Dexter, and Mad Men, and Breaking Bad, and House of Cards, remind us is that men and women, listen, apart from the grace of God, have very, actually apart from the grace of God, have no power whatsoever to resist the dark passenger. If you, the Bible says if you are not a Christian, the rhino has all the authority in your life. The dark passenger rules your life. 
These shows, I think, do a great job at showing us what the Bible teaches on sin. It puts it, it displays us, it for us on screen. See, sin starts out small and cute and innocent, starts out secret and sexy. It's alluring, right? It just has this draw, it looks good, it's gonna smell good, it's gonna taste good, it's gonna feel good, it's gonna be good for me. But before you know it, you taste it, you try it, and all of a sudden, your senses are awakened, your desires are spurked up, all of a sudden, you're, you're addicted to it. The rush has captured you. You're in over your head. You need more and more and more, no matter what it is. It could be sex, it could be money, it could be power, it could be fame, it could be comfort, it could be drugs, it could be other people's approval. But your desires become unstoppable, unquenchable. And before you know it, the thing that you once loved turns on you. See, this is what sin does. It gets us hooked and it's a little bit, it's going to be good for us, it's going to be good for us. And then all of a sudden, it's the snowball that nobody can stop. It's like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, so consumed by his precious that he doesn't even realize he's become a monster. That's what sin does. Makes us obsessed about something. Getting ahead in business. Makes us obsessed about our children. Makes us obsessed about getting at one, getting the next promotion. Being obsessed about, can I get published in that journal? What do those people think about me? Can I finally, I'm finally going to get the judgment that I'm looking for. The judgment that says, you're acceptable, you're good, you're trustworthy. But I'm out there trying to find that judgment. And these shows, they don't sugarcoat. The destructiveness of it starts out so cute, starts out so innocent. But by the end, it destroys everything. Dexter loses everything. Walter White loses everything. The ones closest to him hate him. They turn on him. The one that he's been, dad, you're convinced that you work so many long hours to provide for your family, but many times you, your working becomes an idol. Your family sees it. They don't care how much you're working. They want you. They want time. And the thing that you say you're working for, I'm working for my kids, you actually destroy the relationship and they don't want anything to do with you. That's what sin does. Ultimately, the problem with the world is me and my broken, sinful, jacked up heart. The problem with the world is the human heart. Listen, it's like, it's like blowing up a balloon for your kids, right? Have you ever done this? Because this is, this is what it is. How big is big enough? Here's, here's how it goes. Bigger, 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 pop, dead. Why'd you do that? Like that, that's how it goes. Bigger, 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 bigger. Pop. You're mean. Why'd you pop my balloon? That, this is the human heart. More, 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 more. Pop. See, that's what sin does to the human heart. It blows it up. It puffs it up full of hot air. 
And it might be fun for a season, but eventually it pops and it destroys everything. And we're going to see that again in our text today, that being puffed up comes from being blown up, comes before being blown up. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before destruction. If you were in missional community this week and you studied the life of David and you studied the Psalm 51, you got to see a picture of this. This could be a show, right? This could be madmen. This could be one of those depictions of the wickedness, the deceitfulness of sin. Puffs him up, puffs him up, blows him up. And I know that in a group this size, listen, there are many of us here today, you're on the verge of blowing up. You are on the verge of ruining your marriage. You're on the verge of tarnishing your career. You're on the verge of destroying your family. You're on the verge of bankrupting yourself spiritually. You are on the verge of doing damage that could take years to repair or maybe it's unrepairable. There's, there's some of us in this room that we've been, we've been bl- our hearts been get ex- expanding, expanding, expanding. We've been playing with sin, playing with sin, playing with sin. And it's on the verse of bursting. And I think, I'm going to tell you, that there's good news in this text today. Paul's going to show us how to fight it, how to slit the throat of the dark passenger, how to keep our boot on the neck of the dark passenger, how to outmaneuver and mortify. That's the word the old-timey Puritans used to say. Mortify, put to death, starve to death our dark passenger. And Paul's going to show us the answer. Listen, the answer to our heart problem. What's the answer? What's the answer? What, the heart wants to puff up. What's the answer? The answer is not to puff up, but to be filled up. The answer is not to puff up, but to be filled up. But first, before we get to the answer of how to be filled up, how to have a full heart, I, I want to look at two dangers that Paul shows us here, two things that will puff your heart up but it won't actually fill it up. Look at verse three. But with me, so he's, he's saying, we all want to be found trustworthy, right? But look at this. Who, tell me this. Who tells you if you're trustworthy or not? Who's the judge? Who's the one that renders a verdict upon your life that says you're good or you're not good? Who, who do you go to to find your meaning? Who do you go to to say, I'm a good person? Listen to what Paul says, verse three. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. All right, stop right there. <laughs> what Paul says, number one, the approval of other people, it, it's going to puff your heart up and it's not going to fill your heart up. If you want the judgment that you're looking for, other people won't give it to you in the way that you need it. Now, let me, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Tim Keller uses this illustration in a couple of his books. Uh, Vogue magazine interviewed Madonna in which she was talking about her career. Now, listen to this. Here's what she says. She says, my drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. My drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. Listen, that's always pushing me. Listen to what she says. I push past one spell of it 
And I discover myself as a special human being. And then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended. And I guess it never will. Listen to this. This is what she's saying. The reason I'm so successful, the reason I'm so powerful, the reason I'm so popular is because I have this inner sense that I'm mediocre. I have this inner brokenness, this inner darkness that says I'm average. And so I have to, that judge, the judge of other people's opinion tells me I'm average. So I have to go out and prove I'm awesome. So what, do you, what does she do? She does something scandalous. She just puts on some crazy concert. She releases a new album. She gets another face, right? Whatever. To prove to the world she's not average. But what does she say? She says, that works. I'm special. And then a month goes by or a year goes by and the dark passenger rises up and says, do it again. Do it again. Prove to other people that you're somebody. Go find that judgment. Go find somebody to tell you you're good enough. Now listen, I'll tell you one thing. Madonna knows herself better than most of us know ourselves. Because what she's saying is, every time I accomplish something, every time I get another deal, every time I fix another patient, every time I sell another home, every time I conquer another woman, every time I accomplish something, I say, now I finally have the verdict that I'm somebody. But then the next day, I realize, unless I keep going, I'm not. That my ego cannot be satisfied. My desire for self-worth and to be sure I'm somebody, it needs a verdict. But it's not coming. It needs a final verdict. It needs to be dealt with completely. But the, the need for other people's approval is incessant. I keep thinking, I've won it from what people have said and from what the magazines have said and from what my boss has said. And finally, I'm somebody only to realize the next day I still have to get up and find that approval and seek it from somebody else. Can I ask you this morning, what tells you that you're special? Don't give me some BS answer. Really, where do you go when you're low? Where do you go when you're feeling low? What tells you you're good? What tells you you're trustworthy? What tells you you're lovable? What tells you you have value? Many of us use the judgments of our friends and families, our coworkers, or our Facebook followers. As long as they think I'm good, nothing else matters. Parents, listen to this. If you're using your kids to tell you that you're good, this is what that feels like. You come home, and you have dreams of them running to you. It happens. I remember I used to love it. I'd pull in, I'd get out of my truck, I'd walk in front of the front window, go into the door, and I could hear inside, Daddy's home! I'd open the door, woof, tack the legs. I'd feel, oh, I'm a good dad. Then that day comes home. Then that day comes, right? Walk by the window. No pitter-patter. Open the door. Daddy's home, the one who puts the roof over your head. 
The one who pays for everything, the one who loves you, the one who wakes up in the middle of the night, cleans up your vomit. He's home. Right? That day comes. Moms, stay-at-home moms, that day comes real quick. Real quick. When the value, you want your kids to look at you and go, thank you for everything you've done. You've sacrificed so much for me. And that never happens. Maybe that happens. Usually that happens like in college sometime. The kid realizes like, I need pizza, but I got no money. Mom just used to buy pizza all the time. She, she was actually pretty awesome. She cleaned my clothes. This is a lot harder than I thought, right? With this realization, I have had a great parent. I've had great parents. I really did not think that in high school. See, many of us use the judgments of our friends and our families and our coworkers or our Facebook followers to tell us we have value. As long as they think I'm a good person, that's all that matters to me. And listen, that's a trap and will never put to death the dark passenger within. See, other people's approval actually just feeds the dark passenger and causes that dark passenger in us to grow. It gives that dark passenger more power and it renews the authority of that dark passenger. The approval of people, what I'm saying is it only puffs up our heart. And eventually, when you walk through the door and the kids just go, ah, he's home. Pop. There it goes. Or the, you're doing everything for the approval of that one person that you want to spend the rest of your life with and she walks out on you. Pop. Or you pour everything into the job and then one day you've had your, your record sales, everything's going great, and one day you hear the word, the word company's downsizing, we're gonna have to get rid of you. Right, your job's on the chopping block. Pop! What do you do? See, Paul says the approval of other people it blows, it, it puffs up, doesn't fill up. Doesn't fill up, it puffs up. But what's the answer? What's the answer? Look at this. Because I think many of us, we we're like, well, okay, I think. I know what the answer is. Well, let's look real quick here. For, uh, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So the judgment of other people doesn't matter. Well, look at this. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, what do you do? Here, listen to this. This is a sharp turn, I think, from where we think he's headed. What do you say to someone who is controlled by what other people think of them? What do you say when someone is just, you know, neurotic about pleasing their boss or neurotic about pleasing their spouse or pleasing their girlfriend or neurotic about pleasing other people? What do you say to someone like that? Now, I think probably here's what most people say. Oh, it should not matter what other people think of you. You shouldn't be living according to what they say. You shouldn't be living according to their standards. It shouldn't matter what they think about you. What should only matter is what you think of you. 
It shouldn't matter what everybody else's standards are. It should only matter what your standards are. You better choose your own standards. Decide what you want to be and then be it. The only thing that matters is what you think of yourself. See, we would say a person who needs the approval of everybody else to be happy, that person has low self-esteem. And our culture says the answer to low self-esteem is high self-esteem. Don't care what anybody else, doesn't, doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. What matters is what you think. You know what? I may be a serial killer at night, but I'm a good dad. I'm a pretty good dad. Like, I know it's extreme, but that's what our pop psych, that's what our culture tells us. Morality is relative. You make your own rules. You make your own reality. You, you live according to your own standards. But is that what Paul does? No. See, in other words, right? In our modern world, in our culture, in our society, we do not know how to deal with low self-esteem without basically remedying it with high self-esteem. With saying, you need to see, this is all you need. You just need to know you are a great person. You need to see how wonderful you are, how beautiful you are. Just look at all the great things you've accomplished. Look at all the wonderful things. You just have to not worry what other people think about you. You set your own standards. You accomplish them. Then you evaluate yourself. You're the judge. But Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. I don't care what other people say about me. Then, what does he say? Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Let me paraphrase this. Paul says, I don't care what you think, but I don't care what I think either. (laughs) I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, but I have an even lower opinion of my opinion of me. I don't trust your judgment. I don't trust my judgment. I don't, I'm not going to dance for my dinner and do everything you want me to do to get your approval to blow my heart up. And I'm not going to convince myself that I'm a good person and blow my heart up. I don't trust your judgment. I don't trust my judgment. Paul understands his problem. It's not outside of himself. It's inside of him. He doesn't even trust himself. And I said, last, I said last week, I think I built it out pretty well last week, that we don't trust people that lie to us, right? Rightly, we don't trust people that lie to us, but there's one big problem there. You have lied to you more than anybody else in the world. You've convinced yourself this is a really good idea. <laughs> that business proposal, this is not a pyramid scheme. This is not a pyramid scheme. If you start with that, we all know it is a pyramid scheme. Convince yourself of it. So the approval of people, listen, and the approval of yourself, it just blows us up. It just puffs up our heart. It doesn't fill us up. There's hot air. Your your boss might be happy with you today and you feel great, but maybe if the, the numbers change next month or something happens, your job might be on the chopping block tomorrow. 
Your spouse might be happy with you today and you feel great. She might, be, she might hate your guts tomorrow and you'll be destroyed. Kids might be happy today, might not be happy tomorrow. So, listen, for those of you who are still bought into like, I just have to feel good about myself. I just have to feel good about myself. Do you remember how devastating to your self-esteem in high school one pimple was? Do you remember how you could look in, your, in the mirror and you go, I'm, I'm pretty good today. I feel decent about myself. I feel decent. And then you wake up in the morning and you got something on the end of your nose, you got something in your forehead and you're like, I'm not going to school. I'm not going to school. Or you do some crazy thing and put a huge Band-Aid on it or something crazy, right? Like nobody's going to notice. You know, one pimple would destroy your self-worth. That's how flimsy it is. It's how flimsy our own approval of our own self is. It's ridiculous. So here's the question. What will fill our hearts up so they won't puff up and be blown up? What will fill our hearts up so they won't be puffed up and blow up? We've said the reason we puff up is because we all are looking for a judgment, right? We're all looking to someone or something to say, you're good, you're acceptable, you're loved, you're approved. Could be other people, could be ourself. And listen, I'm gonna tell you personally, my standard for myself is wicked high. <laughs> and I do not give myself grace very often. So when I'm judging myself, I condemn myself. I feel horrible. I feel defeated. Anytime I make a mistake, anytime I fail my own standard, I am not gracious to myself. Paul's got an answer though. Look at verse four. For I am not aware of anything against myself. He's like, I don't judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself. My conscience is clean, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Look at this. It is the Lord who judges me. Oh, snap, Tupac. Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Drop the mic, walk. Right? That's not what Paul's saying. Only God can judge me, which basically means I can do whatever I want. God's cool. I'm cool with God upstairs. It's fine. It's not what he means. And listen, this is why. Most of the time, when we say only God can judge me, what that means is um, I'm going to get away with all my sin. None of you guys can call me out. None of you guys can point anything out to me. doesn't matter what you think. Like, I'm cool with God. And really, it insinuates that God is just, uh, he doesn't really care about our sin. He doesn't really care about the wickedness of our hearts. It's not really a big deal to him. Right? Only God can judge me. But this should actually not feel safe to us. Look at this next verse. Only God could judge me. Look at verse 5. Therefore, or because of that, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before, look, the Lord comes. Jesus comes. Who, look what he's going to do. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Ooh. And we'll look at this, disclose or uncover the purposes of the heart. Whoa. See, see, Tupac, this shouldn't feel safe to you. 
Only God can judge me because when God comes to judge you, when Jesus Christ comes again, he actually opens up your heart and he actually exposes the dark areas and all those little critters that are hiding in the corner of the dark, cold basement, he woos them out into the light. That means that God actually concerns himself and cares about the hidden Please just say this with me today. Hidden. The hidden sins of our heart. Jealousy. Strife. Bitterness. Anger. Pride. Lust. Even the sins that just stay in your head. One day Jesus Christ is going to expose those. He's going to pull those out into the light. The dark passenger within us. He's going to say, dark passengers, step forward. Now on that day, I wish I had a, some kind of technology that could just, for a second, flash what you're thinking up here. <laughs> How you're trying to cover up the sin, whatever you did last night, whatever you're doing, the pride, those issues of the heart. We want to cover them. We want nobody to know about them. And Jesus says, when I come back, I'm bringing them into the light. And this is the strength. This, this verse, when I read it, it felt so out of place to me. Look at this next verse. We'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Look at the last, this last sentence. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Um, okay, a commendation, that is the act of praising someone. It's like, a, like an official document that praises someone publicly. So this is what, God, this is what Paul's saying. On that day, Christ is going to say, dark passenger, come forward. The wickedness in your heart, the things hidden in the dark corners that you don't want no one to know about, the lustful thoughts of somebody else's spouse, Right? The, the ways you really want to cheat the system and paying your taxes and get around it, all the, th the hidden things in our heart, he's going to say, come forward into the light, and then he's going to go, all right, time for your report card. Here's your commendation. Now, I expect, I expected there to be the word judgment there. I expected there to be the sins come forward into the light and everyone will receive their punishment. Everyone will receive their judgment. Everyone will receive their due. But he says everyone will receive their commendation. Is that a little confusing to you? It's a little backwards? How could we get praise? How could we get a blessing after seeing the wickedness in our hearts? Shouldn't we can expect condemnation and a reprimand? Now listen, I think the key to this, let's just keep reading. We'll read. Now let's just go to verse seven. No, I'm gonna go to six. I've applied all these things to myself. So he's saying, I, I've done this personally and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us. Look, here's, here's something we should learn to not go beyond what is written. What's the Bible say about it? What's scripture say about it? Don't go past that. And then look, that none of you may be what? Puffed up in favor of one against the other. Look at verse seven. Here's the answer. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have 
that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you haven't received it? Here's the key. What do you have that you did not receive? Look, Paul is rooting what's going to happen in the coming day of the Lord, what's going to happen in the future, what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back. He's rooting that to another day in the past. A day, as we saw last week, they received all things. Do you remember that? All things are yours. You've received everything in Christ. Christ is in God, right? Do you remember that? The coming day of the Lord, what's going to happen in the future, is rooted in that experience of the past, that one day you received all things. And if you were the one to receive it, you didn't earn it, you didn't get it on your own, you didn't find it, you received it. It was a work of grace. If you got it by grace, how could you be bragging about it now? This is a future event, but its significance rests in the past. Now, let's see how much time I got here. Okay. Let's go to, if you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah 53. I want to show you something. Isaiah 53, this was written... Um, a long time before the birth of Jesus, part of the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And let's read Isaiah 53 today. Who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of Jesus here, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Look at this. He had no form of, or majesty, that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus was oppressed and Jesus was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, Jesus did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, look at this, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Listen. Isaiah 53 tells us when Jesus Christ, listen to this, how could our dark passenger be brought out into the light and then we get a commendation? How could that happen? Listen, Isaiah 53 tells us when Jesus Christ was brought out into the light, when he was marched out into the light of the noonday sun, he was hideous. Men hid their faces from him. He was despised because he was carrying our sorrows. He was hideous. He was crushed by God for our sins. See, at Jesus' crucifixion, God laid on Jesus all of our sins. All of our sin, hidden and dark secret sins. Jesus became our dark passenger. And he was brought out into light and he was judged for all eternity so that when our dark passenger we brought out into light, we can receive justification by faith through grace alone. That we can get Jesus Christ's righteousness. Paul's saying, if you, if, you, if you saw that, if you believe that, if you knew that everything you had was a result of the grace of God because Jesus Christ was willing to be your dark passenger, you in hope can bring, can allow him to bring your dark passenger to light and you can get a commendation. You get the good report that Jesus earned because he took the punishment for your bad report. Listen, if we got this, listen, our heart puffs up. We don't want to believe this. Listen, if you got this and you knew it was a result of grace, you wouldn't boast. You wouldn't boast in your accomplishments. You wouldn't boast in being more spiritual or getting the gospel more than somebody else or being more popular or, or being uh, you know, better with finances. Listen to this, just so we know. As soon as you look down on someone else, it shows that your heart's puffed up. Right? Think of a hot air balloon. It's puffed up, you're looking down. You stepped away from the grace of God. You've forgotten that. What do you have that you haven't received? Anyone who says, see, this happens in missional community. Somebody admits something. Somebody's sin comes to light. Anyone who says, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they did that. Or I would never do that. You're in great danger. Your heart is puffed up. And it's, that's like a sign that it could pop at any minute. 
You're puffed up. I would never do that. You don't even see the wickedness of your heart. You don't get your dark passenger. You don't get what's inside you that wants to ruin your life, wants to ruin your marriage, wants to ruin your kids, wants to ruin your career. You don't get you have an enemy within. But Paul says this, here's the answer. You don't want to be puffed up. You've got to be filled up with the grace of God. Please hear me. The only thing you have earned on your own is a hot spot in hell. It's the only thing you've earned on your own. Everything above that has come through the grace of God to you. Listen, you might have been the greatest athlete in your high school. And you might have convinced yourself that you earned it and that you created it. But you didn't. Right? I, I don't see Julian here. Julian, he plays NFL football. Right? Julian, six four something, 300, none of your business, right? He is a big dude. And listen, it wouldn't matter how hard I worked in high school. I could never play offensive line in the NFL. Julian has done a lot to earn that, but Julian has not earned that. Julian was not in the womb going, make me enormous and athletic. That is grace. You're artistic. That is grace. You're an introvert. That is grace. You're an extrovert. That is grace. You're a carpenter. That is grace. You're good with numbers. That is grace. Everything you've been given is a result of the grace of God. And only by dwelling in that and relishing in that will that fill your heart up that says, I don't need the judgment of other people. I can't even trust the judgment of myself. I have the judgment of God. It's all grace. Other people's approval will never fill you up. Trying to convince yourself that you're a good person will never fill you up. Listen, letting Jesus bring your dark passenger out into the light for the whole world to see and saying, yep, that's how bad my heart is. But praise be to God, all my sins, past, present, and future, my dark passenger has been nailed to the cross. The only one who, who can judge me, Jesus Christ, the only one who can judge me, chose not to. The judge stepped down from the bench and took my place as the guilty one that Jesus became my dark passenger. He took my darkness into himself and he dealt with it. See, in Jesus Christ, my judgment day is in the past. All of the bad things that I deserve are gone. They're past. The verdict is already in. The trial is over. See, listen. What, Madonna? Madonna? The verdict's never in. She'd get a verdict, she'd need another one the next day. So listen, the trial is always going on, so you're always trying to prove. You're always trying to win the verdict. You're always trying to prove yourself to get a good verdict. Listen, in Christianity, it's the only religion on the planet that the verdict comes before the performance. Jesus Christ performed perfectly for you, so if you receive that into your heart if you believe Jesus Christ if you turn from your sin and through grace by faith believe in Jesus Christ the verdict comes in free clean pure holy forgiven and now we get to go live now we get to obey now we get to 
live out our salvation. Only in Christianity does the verdict come before the trial. The trial is over. So if you're in Christ this morning, stop acting like you're still on trial all the time. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He, the verdict is in. He loves you. He accepts you. Scripture says he sings over you. What? My dark passenger. The dark passenger has been dealt with. He sings over you. He's thrilled with you. And then he accepts you. And this is all grace. And this is not wishy-washy. It can never be removed. Christ can never undie. Christ can never unperform. Christ has already done it in history, in time. It's finished. Listen to this quote by Calvin as I close. This is it. It is of no little importance to be rid of your self-love, that's your self-esteem, and made fully conscious of your weakness. So impressed with a sense of your weakness as to learn to distrust yourself. Why? To distrust yourself so as to transfer your confidence to God. Oh man, reclining on him with such heartfelt confidence as to trust in his aid. And look at this. And continue invincible to the end. Standing by his grace so as to perceive that he is true to his promises and so assured of the certainty of his promises as to be strong in hope. When we're we're filled up with the grace of God, Calvin says, we're invincible to the end. Paul says in other places, where can you go to get away from the love of God? Where can you go? Heaven, hell, you can't get away from the love of God. When we're in Christ, it's been finished. We're invincible to the end. But if our hope is in the approval of others, if our hope is in the approval of ourself, the verdict is always out and you're going to be performing for the rest of your life. My call to you this morning is, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, do so today because he's the only sure foundation. He's the only place where your identity is secure, where you're not out looking for the approval of others or searching for the approval of yourself. He's the only one that says, approved because of Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, recognize that dark passenger is still seeking those two things, the approval of others and the approval of yourself. And it's your job to fight him It's your job to keep your foot on his throat. It's your job to believe by faith. Martin Luther said, the Christian life is meant to be one of constant repentance. This is his first theses in his 95 of them. They nailed to the door, right? His first one, the Christian life is meant all to be repentance. We see our darkness. We see the the dark passenger and we turn and we say, Jesus, there he is again. I see what he did again, but I know by faith You've put him to death. I know you've paid for this sin. I know you've cleansed me. Let me swim in that grace. Let me believe that grace. I don't trust my own judgment. I don't trust others. Only God can judge me. And you've already judged Jesus Christ. Let us pray. 
Father, what a gospel we have. Or the judgment and the verdict comes before the performance. We can never earn your approval. Jesus Christ earned your approval by being perfect and by dying the death that we all deserve, by taking our dark passenger upon himself and willingly letting you crush him. Vileness. All the sins placed on Jesus. He takes them to the cross and he kills them there. He pays the penalty for them. He destroys the wrath of God and turns it away from us so that now through faith we can have his righteousness, his right standing so that you can look at us and be pleased with us because of the work of Christ. Father, as we come to the table this morning, let us remember our baptism. Let us remember that we have been made new. Let us remember that we've been adopted into your family. Let us remember that your blood covers all sins. Let us remember that your judgment is the only judgment that matters. And all of that judgment was placed on Jesus. And as we eat the body and drink the blood this morning, we're reminded that you made payment in full for us. There's nothing left to pay. Let us rejoice in the God of our salvation. You are good. You are great. You are gracious. You are glorious this morning. Communicate your grace to us through this meal this morning, Father, as we break it like your body was broken. As we receive it, we just open our hands and we just take it in. We haven't earned it. We haven't cooked it. We didn't do anything for this. We just receive it. And that's the same way we receive you. Just stick out our hands You've done it all for us. Christ's precious name, we pray. Amen. The men who are coming would serve with me this morning.